to 12 minutes past the hour of 11 o'clock. Piers Cunningham is the RWPFM special COVID-19 reporter. Joins us uh, each and every edition of the program to bring us up to speed on what is happening. And the good news, Piers, is uh, we come to you. Uh, more fantastic results as far as the um, well, the virus and its contamination is concerned. What is it, 26 days straight now, and uh, we're looking pretty good. That's right, Brendan. Yeah, it's very encouraging news there. And uh, I think once we get to 28 days, that's that's theoretical elimination, although obviously because it's based on the number of tests performed, we can't test everyone. We won't, we're unlikely to actually eliminate it in a true sense, but it is uh, defined as far as the uh, state government's concerned and other governments, I think, around Australia, uh, that, that that is uh, it's kind of theoretical elimination. So a great milestone if we get 28 days. Indeed. Well, we had the member for Flinders, in fact, the Federal Health Minister this week, uh, touting the vaccines which are going to be available to us. And it looks like they're really beginning to make some remarkable progress as well. We've discussed in the past the three phases of uh, basically rolling out these vaccines. We're deep into phase three at the moment. And it looks like Australia has earmarked uh, a supply which is probably going to be very good for us early in the new year. Yeah, they've been smart. They've, they've, they've taken a kind of each way bet or... You know, I think they've backed about four or six, uh, you know, several possible solutions so that they can kind of get the best one they can pick and choose once the results are in or once more results are in. But I've been reading up on vaccines and it's it's interesting. I mean, while it's certainly cause for optimism and hope, uh, particularly for people in the Northern Hemisphere and countries really that are, that are reeling from, from this virus, you know, we're very lucky in Australia and people forget, or it's easy to forget how different and starkly different it is in most other countries in the world. And some of the caveats about and the limits to to what we know about how effective coronavirus vaccines will actually be include um, the fact that they've been fast-tracked. So in America, Pfizer, the Pfizer one, which is one of the ones that's been in the news, is supposed to be 90 to 95% effective. And we'll come to exactly what the meaning of the word effective is. But that's been fast-tracked. They've applied for, and I think they've received, fast-track approval. So normally a drug would actually take longer, but because of the urgency of the situation there, that Pfizer vaccine is being fast-tracked so that it can be released you know, in large and massive scale this year, in, literally in, in coming weeks. And, and that does mean that there's less known about the vaccine than, than would normally or ideally be the case. And so... Uh, that's something to keep in mind, that the, the numbers, and even though these are widespread stage three, uh, there's, I don't think they've actually got full peer-reviewed uh, results of the stage three tests yet, but they're allowed under the, the emergency rules that are being applied in America, they're allowed to fast-track and they can skip that extra level of, of peer review, which would normally apply. Uh, so other issues that are being flagged at the moment is, you know, if these things roll out, they want to target the most needy and, and they want to be very as fair as possible. So in, in the developing world, in third world countries where these drugs are really desperately needed, refrigeration is required for the Pfizer vaccine. Now, if you don't have proper refrigeration, then you can damage the vaccine. So that's an issue that, that needs to be addressed and needs to be kept in mind. Um, the mainstream vaccines that are, that are out there are between 70 and 95% effective, but for how long do they remain effective? Um, do they actually cure the worst cases of coronavirus? Do they confirm, confer long-term immunity? 
Uh, how will they work for the most vulnerable, the elderly, people with comorbidities, minority groups who seem more, more vulnerable to dying from this terrible disease? So these are important things which are not fully known. So definitely cause for optimism at the moment. There is optimism, a lot of optimism in Australia. You look at our share market to see uh, that we're kind of going in the opposite direction to where other share markets are going at the moment, partly because of of uh, the fact that we've got very low numbers. Uh, other things to keep in mind about the vaccines is that they have been... Um, they're based on trials which have been done in ideal conditions. Uh, and these are very different from real-world situations where they'll be used. Um, and finally, on, on um, vaccines, they are intended to stop people getting sick but not necessarily from contracting the disease. So, in other words, you could be given a vaccine, you could actually contract COVID, but the vaccine will stop you getting sick. Now, if this is the case, are you still able to infect other people? These are, that's, a, that's a really important question. Well, so, well, well, that then means, you know, max, uh, maximum vaccination, of course, and that speaks to the logistics of rolling this stuff out as well. There's also the sentiment of the anti-vaxxers that's going to have to be taken into account of all this as well. And as you say, yeah. some of the restrictions, particularly around the Pfizer model, where the thing's got to be kept at, what is it, minus 70 uh, to be effective, and that's going to cause, as you say, logistically, I'm surely going to be some serious dramas around that. That's right, whereas the Oxford-developed vaccine option, apparently not as effective. It doesn't have a higher percentage of, of um, effectiveness, in, in quotation marks. Uh, it doesn't require refrigeration. No. So there are, there are sort of swings and roundabouts there. And, and incidentally, if you, if you are an anti-vaxxer and you're not prepared to take uh, one of these options then Qantas CEO Alan Joyce says you're not welcome on board his aircraft for international flight, and he predicts that if you try to shop around as an anti-vaxxer for an airline that will carry you, you won't be travelling far. Yes, that's an interesting intervention as well, isn't it, into sort of personal rights and uh, medical rights of the individual, which I think is probably going to be a discussion that Mr Joyce has set off, and I'm sure the anti-vaxxers are going to be uh, having a lot to say about that in the next 24 hours or so. But interestingly, though, I, I was do, reading some, some antibody work as well that's being done by a number of researchers, peers, suggesting that, in fact... Um, if you do develop antibodies and an immunity, it looks like you probably do have immunity longer than they were first thinking. So it's getting toward the year that they're now thinking. Yeah. Well, again, what happens after that year's up? And there is some uncertainty. So, you know, this will be stuff that will have to be refined. And, and drugs and vaccinations and all this sort of stuff are always refined over time. One of the issues with developing a, 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 a and using a testing a, a potential vaccination for COVID-19 is that normally when you test a drug, you actually have a solution, so you're trying to refine the drug, and so you can actually deliberately infect people knowing that you've got a backup to make them healthy if needed. So the ideal way to test the, the effectiveness of a drug is to deliberately infect someone, so preferably someone who's, who's young and likely to you know, have a good immune response of their own regardless of any drugs they may have, uh, and then... Uh, then test your vaccination on them to see if it actually cures them of the disease. And normally, you'll be ref you'll be improving on a known drug that can that you can give to the person if the test drug doesn't work. But with COVID nineteen, that that doesn't apply because they don't have a 
a, a reliable sort of backup solution. So that's another difference that applies with the research that's been going into developing vaccines so far. But as we progress through the months and, and, and possibly even years ahead, then the drugs will be refined, and that's, that's normal. Interesting days. Uh, Piers, thank you very much indeed. So watch this space. As you say, the market's certainly reacting. We've got Michael D coming up to talk to us about the markets in just a moment as well. They've been taking off. And again, President Trump uh, really reckoning that uh, it's thanks to him, of course, and his vaccine work, which means that uh, Wall Street has responded in the way it has, setting some uh, new uh, benchmarks in the last 24 hours or so. Yeah, and another thing, just very briefly before I go, uh, if time permits, Brendan, is outback quarantine uh, has been put on the, the uh, table by uh, experts around the country who are saying that we've had that much leakage of uh, the disease out of hotels in built-up cities, Melbourne, South Australia recently, uh, that we should be using outback facilities to to house people who are coming in from overseas, a lot of whom have got the disease, because if, it, if you do have leakage, it can't spread as widely. You tend to have more you have workers because they're remote. They tend to be in remote locations. They tend to be people who are who stay in one place, so they're not returning back to a you know extended family in the suburbs and spreading it out into a into a highly dense, densely populated area. Uh, and the federal government's national review of hotel quarantine, released in October found the system had largely succeeded using hotel quarantine in cities, but did recommend a national quarantine facility be set up for emergencies at the 3,000-person Howard Springs facility in the Northern Territory. Uh, another place that's been earmarked is Learmonth Air Base. Uh, so they're looking at... And, and I think it makes a lot of sense. that There, are, there is pushback from state governments saying this is going to be very, very expensive and logistically hard to do and you don't have the medical support that you need in remote locations. But it would certainly make cities less vulnerable to leakage from hotel quarantine. It would indeed. But then again, as uh, as uh, perhaps some of the state uh, governments are saying, how do you get the people from the airport back out into the bush and keep them out there for a couple of weeks as well? So just uh, the transport and the logistics of all that, very, very difficult, I would suggest. But yeah, yeah definitely understand uh, the sentiment and the thinking behind it. Well, there's an international airport at Port Hedland well, in northern Western Australia, so that might be um, might be a possible location there. It could. Piers Cunningham, thank you very much indeed, and uh, we will be keeping an eye on COVID-19. Join us again on Monday when uh, we next get together, hey? Pleasure, Brendan. Look forward to it. Thank you very much indeed. Piers Cunningham on the line, our COVID-19 reporter, reading into all the latest research here as far as this uh, pandemic is concerned. So, as uh, he's been saying, as Piers has been saying, vaccines certainly looking good. The numbers so far certainly proving that uh, we might not be too far away from a rollout, but there are a couple of caveats to all that. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Welcome indeed. This is Open for Business, coming to you live from the Bendigo Bank Studios. A glorious day down here in the Mornington Peninsula. The sun is out, the birds are chirping in the trees. We don't have COVID, and we haven't had COVID for some 31 days in this uh, beautiful state, and certainly down here on the uh, Mornington Peninsula, much longer than that. Alas, however, as we've heard the news, one death, a 70-year-old uh, passing away through complications of COVID overnight. Our COVID-19 special reporter is Piers Cunningham on the line now. Good morning, Piers. 
Um, so another day, another 31 days, in fact, that were now clear. So obviously lots to celebrate. And once again here in Australia, as we look at the new cycle from overseas, well, we must be feeling pretty proud of ourselves, and I'm sure we are. Yeah, that's true, Brendan. And uh, you mentioned 31 days in a row, which is great. Zero state cases, sadly one death. Uh, and 5,030 tests. So you'd like that number to come up, uh, even if it means testing people who don't have symptoms, and that, that may well be something that the government does. And indeed, they've talked about areas where they've found traces in sewerage that they will uh, open up, pop up. They're already doing this, actually, in certain parts of Melbourne. Uh, over in the west, I believe, they've uh, opened up some pop-up testing stations looking for... Uh, people who may be asymptomatic. So, uh, but but despite that really good news, 31 days in a row, a row I mean, it really is just a fantastic result when you think of how people were feeling only just a couple of months ago. Correct, indeed. Um, so they were they were very staunch. And the other factor, of course, is the the announcement uh, just in a little while that the states are going to be opening up. So it's NT, South Australia, New South Wales. They've all been pretty staunch and adamant that we had an issue here. But now, obviously, looking at the numbers coming out of Melbourne, they must be feeling pretty good about us as well. I think we're, we're, we're doing very, very well, and it's uh, and it's great. New South Wales also no new cases there, so um, you know the two big states of Australia, population-wise, uh, doing very well. You mentioned in the opening the overseas situation, and I thought I'd talk a little bit today about Sweden because Sweden has been held up as the poster child of you know not locking down too hard, trying to keep their economy going, and uh, and dealing with the virus with an approach that was, was aiming for a kind of herd immunity where enough people have the disease to protect most people and to actually reduce the need for a vaccine. Uh, so if you if you've got if you have herd immunity, uh, then then you have less need for a vaccine or uh, herd immunity can actually be supported by a vaccine. Now it's early days of the vaccine. We talked a bit about some of the. Uh, the drawbacks or some of the caveats that are applying to the, the vaccines that are out there around the world uh, and, uh, and some of the delays and also, you know, who gets it first, that sort of stuff. That's all something which is you know, being talked about now. And if we've got time today, I'll, I'll come to the question of who gets the, vi the, the vaccine first. Uh, but, but on Sweden, uh, the thing that really strikes me, I looked at the numbers today for the first time in a while, comparing Sweden with its neighbouring Scandinavian countries. Now, bear in mind, Norway and Finland uh, did actually have quite hard lockdowns early on. Uh, probably not as hard as, as, the, as the prolonged lockdown we had in Victoria, that stage four lockdown we endured here. But nevertheless, they did go for a, a non... Um, non-biological, it's not a sort of scientific approach, it's what they did back in uh, the, the pandemic following the First World War, 1918, 19, they, you know, there's photos that I've seen of people wearing masks and, and basically people being isolated. That was the only way they could deal with it. They didn't understand, didn't have the knowledge that we have now. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems that that approach uh, is actually the most successful approach to take with the virus. So the numbers of of Sweden, very sadly, 243,000, over 243,000 confirmed cases with 6,681 deaths to date. Now, you compare that with Norway, uh, they have a total of, uh, uh, they've had a, a total of 34,700 confirmed cases and only 328 deaths. Uh, in Finland, 
24,000 cases uh, and 393 deaths. So very starkly different numbers to their immediate neighbour, Sweden. And these countries have got small populations. I think Sweden is about 10 million, Norway is about five, and I think, uh, just off the top of my head, Finland is around that same number. So why the big difference? And, and this is what is, is, is making people think that this idea of herd immunity uh, that the Swedes aim for and the approach taken to dealing with, with the COVID pandemic uh, turned out to not be such a great move for Sweden with, with these results, you know, the number of cases and the number of deaths in particular compared with their neighbours. Um, so they didn't close their restaurants and bars. They relied on the population to choose to do the right thing. And there's a word for it in Swedish. It's folk bet, which basically means common sense. Uh, and uh, this asked people to voluntarily be cautious, to ex exercise social distancing, washing hands, possibly wearing a mask, or that wasn't really encouraged. And, and I, from what, I've, what I gather, not many people have done that in a lot of settings, in, in, even in crowded, crowded situations. Um, many people did work from home, those who could. Uh, and sadly, as, as has been the case around the world, it was immigrants and minorities and people in lower socioeconomic groups who have been the most vulnerable. Uh, and, uh, and part of the reason, and this has some, some similarities to what happened in Melbourne, actually, uh, was an early failure to communicate the risks and to actually, you know, to actually get people out there who could speak the languages of, of immigrant communities in Sweden. Because over the last 10 years, Sweden has welcomed a lot of, of people from all over the world, the Middle East included, and uh, not all of them uh, are, um, you, you know, speaking fluent Swedish. So there was communication breakdowns. Um, they haven't achieved anywhere near the 70% herd immunity that is apparently needed to, to actually achieve you know, a safe population against a disease like COVID. It might be between 10 and 15%. And that herd immunity that those, that group has, that, that cohort of 10 to 15%, uh, how long will that last? That's another unknown about COVID. If, you, if, you, if you've had it and recovered, uh, how long does the uh, immunity that you have last for? Yes, interesting, day, interesting days, Piers. It was. Uh, I also just having a quick look at the um, Swedish news cycle as well, and Anders Tegnell, who was the chief uh, epidemiologist, advocating, of course, this uh, common sense approach in Sweden. Ordinarily, it turns out he uh, gives a midweek uh, presser, uh, but it didn't happen last week, or it did. But basically, the prime minister Stefan Löfven. Uh, came in over the top of him and basically had a uh, conflicting press conference last week in which he was advocating a little bit more staunch control over the Swedish population. So, again, the uh, it looks like the suspicion is that the Swedes just simply have not got hold of this second wave, which, as you say, in their neighbouring countries of Scandinavia, they seem to have some control over, at least limited control. Yeah, Anders Tegnell has kind of become a, a bit of a folk hero. I mean, maybe this is changing now. Uh, but uh, for, for many months, he has been a kind of folk hero in Sweden. People have had the tattoos of his face uh, on, the, on their arms and legs. Uh, and uh, there's, there's street art uh, celebrating this, this uh, sort of father figure who represents... He's the head of the public health agency of Sweden. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not... It's a, so the directives and the, the, the idea of, of what to, how to approach the pandemic and what to do it came from a non-government person, from a non-government body, so it didn't feel like, you know, you're being told what to do by the state. And people, people sort of reacted 
better to that. They didn't feel like there was as much intrusion into their freedoms. But uh, the whole idea of keeping your economy open was, and, and, and resisting the hard lockdown measures that most countries adopted early on in the year, actually, to a greater or lesser extent and with greater or lesser uh, success, the idea was to, was to save the Swedish economy. But actually, if you compare the economies now of neighbouring countries like Norway and Finland, in terms of the economic contraction, Sweden's not very different. So the, 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 the very reason for taking the course they did and trying for herd immunity hasn't actually made much of a difference to their economy. So Sweden confronting some rather serious numbers, and I think perhaps we're not going to see quite as much of Anders Tegnell as we have in the past as the Swedish government tries to intervene and, as as he was saying, uh, get hold of this second wave, which seems to be sweeping through Europe at the moment as well. Um, also yeah. see that the Brits dealing with their COVID outbreak is basically introducing a series of tiered restrictions, probably a little bit more extreme up north and sort of lightening off in some more rural parts of the country, but obviously a bit of a political stash on there as well for Boris Johnson as he tries to hold off a number of conservative right-wingers who uh, want him to lay off and basically probably pursue the Tegnell Swedish model more. But really, the uh, the empirical evidence beginning to show that although Dan had his detractors, uh, the great man here in Victoria certainly seemed to get it right, as did uh, his uh, advisers. Yeah, and, and look, I have to admit that I was a bit sceptical and I was talking to, listening to doctors' groups who were very critical of the side effects of lockdown. And I guess this has to be a nuanced discussion, doesn't it? You know, it is about degree. It's not a black and white thing. There are degrees and there's, uh, there's, there's Sorry about that. But, but, uh, but yeah, in, in Britain, the confirmed cases uh, overnight, 15,871, 1.6 million confirmed cases. Uh, in total, and uh, 58,000 deaths. So very sad death toll there in the UK. And, you know, plenty of Australians have got family or relatives over there, uh, friends over there. So it's a, it's a sad situation that, that, that uh, confronts Blighty. Uh, and we are lucky. And, and I think that there's going to be discussion based on, you know, what's happening in Europe, especially when we go into our next winter, mid-2021, if the virus is still around to some extent. If the vaccinations haven't been enough, widespread enough, then you know we will be having to look very closely at, at, at what's happened in Europe this winter and try to draw some lessons from it. And so okay, let's we, and so let's time uh, to talk, talk very briefly about distribution of in, in, indeed. But we, we we're going to get you back on Wednesday, Pierce. So we might talk to you a little bit about that. But maybe you can just give us the headlines in the first instance, and maybe explore that in more detail when we next talk to you on Wednesday. So what, what, what have we got? Where, where are we going with the vaccine? looks like Australia seems to have covered its bases extremely well and it looks like we've got some good options going forward. Yeah, in Australia, and look like, like most countries, in a nutshell, they're aiming to give it to the most vulnerable people. So frontline health workers, uh, people who work in prisons and uh, group care home situations, they're likely to be prioritised. Um, older people, those with pre-existing conditions and Indigenous Australians who typically have far worse, worse health outcomes, uh, that they are going to be prioritised. Uh, that's according to the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation that's advising the government. New Zealand's model is likely to be similar to Australia's, uh, including close partnerships with its Indigenous Maori communities. Uh, the World Health 
organisation's advice is that uh, we have an obligation to ensure equitable distribution of the vaccine among neighbouring Pacific Island uh, countries. Uh, but, you know, there's always the devil is in the detail. And, uh, I mean, while America is, is saying that it wants to do the same sort of thing, uh, you know, whether you give uh, the, the vaccine first to a suburban GP or a, 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 a you know, big hospital janitor, you know, who gets it first, who is, who is prioritised for the vaccine? Because initially it won't be able to be given to everyone, so they need to give it to people who are, who are most in need and will benefit the majority by, by being protected most. COVID-19 challenging everything in terms of our science, our understanding, our public health and maybe even our bioethicists. Thank you very much indeed, mm. Piers Cunningham. Love your work. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Open for business across the Mornington Peninsula and well and truly beyond. Good to have your company this Wednesday morning. Piers Cunningham, our special COVID-19 reporter, joins us. We spoke to Piers in the Monday edition. We alluded then to how we are going to roll out uh, the vaccine as it becomes available. We've heard the news in the last 24 hours that the USA reckons that by, well, even by Christmas, they might have some vaccine available to some of the population. Piers, good morning. What have we got? And how do you think we here in Australia are going to be handling the rollout? Well, it's going to vary from country to country, Brendan. So uh, in Australia and, and in most countries, the idea is to get the, the vaccine out to people who are most vulnerable, so the elderly and frontline health workers, because obviously... Uh, especially in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, you need to protect people who are caring for the ill. So the priority will be on on uh, giving it to the most needy people. Now, there have been examples in the past where that hasn't always happened or hasn't always gone according to plan. Doctors Without Borders are actually concerned that big pharmaceutical corporations will follow a sort of business-as-usual approach and seek to maximise profits at the expense of equity and fairness in how they distribute the drugs available, in particular to the developing world. And just a quick quote from Doctors Without Borders. On their website, they say, countries need to use every tool available to make sure that COVID-19 medical products are accessible and affordable for everyone who needs them. That's Dr Sydney Wong, Executive Co-Director of uh, the campaign that they, that uh, Doctors Without Borders have got. Uh, so they're campaigning specifically on this issue. Uh, all COVID-19 health tools and technologies should be true global public goods, free from the barriers that patents and other intellectual properties impose. We call on all governments to urgently throw the support behind this groundbreaking proposal. Well, that's the situation. So, that's that's the situation globally, of course. But thankfully, here in this country, the government has stepped up, taken some responsibility, and it's going to probably be much more an equitable process in this country, surely. Yes, indeed. So um, there is going to be a, an official list of most exposed workers, uh, including those in prisons and group care homes. And after that, Australia is likely to prioritise older people, those with pre-existing conditions, comorbidities, and Indigenous Australians who are more vulnerable to the ravages of COVID. It's been shown uh, and, uh, and need extra attention. That's according to the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. 
That's a recommendation, however. I wonder whether that will be enacted by the government. Is that basically the policy and the principles they're going to abide by? Absolutely it is, but it's going to depend on governments around the world are looking at the efficacy of vaccines and how they're actually going to work before they can really nail this down because there may be differences of approach that are required because of the way vaccines operate. For example, if they don't protect you against infecting other people even though you've been immunised, that may change the way that the viruses are distributed. So far, however, the feedback, at least from some of the trials and the phase three trials, looks pretty optimistic and pretty heartening. And perhaps also a definition here for people as well. Efficacy is basically what is anticipated to be the effectiveness of a vaccine. Effectiveness is the actual effectiveness of the vaccine. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. You don't want to get caught up. You can get caught up in the in the jargon of this. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Indonesia, uh, northern neighbour, the world's most populous Muslim nation, uh, is actually uh, unusual uh, and, and, uh, and out of step with the rest of the world. It plans to prioritise young workers aged between 18 and 59 for the vaccine once healthcare workers have been inoculated. So a different approach there. In uh, South Korea and Taiwan, a similar approach to in Australia, they do want to look after, particularly in, you know, with an ageing population situation, they want to look after their elderly, they want to look after their frontline front workers. Both those countries plan to buy enough vaccines for around 60% of their population. So I think we talked about this last time we spoke on this segment, about 70% is the, the herd immunity level you need to get to to protect the population overall. Now, herd immunity, you either get that through natural process of, the, of uh, developing immunity or you do it through a vaccine so however you get that you, you need to get to about 70 percent so given that the experience in sweden and other countries has been the natural herd immunity seems to be developing in about 10 to 15 percent of the population then that would explain why uh, south korea and taiwan are prepared to be buying only for 60% of their population in, I, in vaccines. I think I might have interrupted you before. Do, do you have some insights into what the Kiwis are doing, the New Zealanders? The Kiwis uh, are similar to Australia. They want to protect Maori populations. They say they have an obligation to ensure equitable distribution of the vaccine, also among neighbouring Pacific Island nations as well. So they're not just looking out for themselves, but also their South Pacific neighbours. Well, interesting, isn't it, that uh, those South Pacific neighbours and the New Zealanders and now Australia, of course, we have a pretty good record. And honestly, I can't see why early in the new year there's not some sort of an air bridge or bubble or whatever it's going to be described as connecting those particular countries across the Southern Hemisphere. Absolutely. Look, I think that that's going to be on the cards, both from a sort of economic point of view and, and tourism uh, to, to get international travel going again. I think there's a lot of Australians who'd love to be going to New Zealand. A lot of skiers like to be heading there next winter because I think that still any any chance of going uh, you know, up north for a ski in the Northern Hemisphere in early next year over this coming winter that, that the North is experiencing uh, is, is unlikely at this stage. Well, you're interesting. I know you're a bit of a skier, Piers, and I know that oftentimes you'll get up to Japan for a little bit of a, a muck around in the powder up there. But um, mm. theoretically, Japan's going to be hosting an Olympic Games around about July, August. Well, look, let's hope that that goes ahead. It'll be very disappointing. And I, I think if it was to be cancelled again, I, I would 
guess that that might mean the abandonment of that Olympics by Japan. I, I can't see it being deferred for another year. Look, that's that's me speculating. I think I did read that that there was uh, they were pretty uh, pretty firm saying that this this wouldn't this deferral for one year wouldn't happen again if if the virus wasn't under control by then. But hopefully, with seasonal shifts, we know that when you head into warmer weather. The virus seems to recede, as do you know seasonal influenza, the flu that goes around. Uh, that that, uh, that Japan going into its summer, so the middle of next year for the summer games being hosted in Tokyo, I think starting in July, that uh, that there'll be a, at least a, a lull in in the number of cases, and that'll allow the games to go ahead. Now, whether they actually allow all the international visitors to Japan who would want to go to the Olympic Games under normal circumstances, that remains to be seen. It may be that they have to have strict quarantining for athletes and uh, and limited numbers at, at attending events. Piers Cunningham, always fascinating. Our special RWPFM COVID-19 reporter. Piers, thank you very much indeed for your time, your effort and uh, your research, and we'll catch you soon. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.